Hey, Dad, it's Mark. I, uh, I know I'm probably the last person you're expecting to hear from right now. But I'm, uh, I'm home. Now you're home. I'm actually standing on your front porch. I, uh, Look, I just want to tell you that I know I haven't been you know, the best son. Look, I guess what I'm trying to say is... And I'm, so, I'm sorry for that, Dad. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing, all right? You've been fine without me? You know, I'm sure you continue to be fine without me. I, uh... I won't bother you no more, Dad. All right. I'm just sorry. Sorry about everything. Bye.
like to comment right before the choir sings <clears throat> that video that we saw a few minutes ago of course you recognize it as being the prodigal son and the lot and the loving father a story we all know well many of us have experienced a lot of that some of us have been the prodigal son some of us has been the loving father some of us may have been both. The fact that Christ doesn't need us or have to have us, but he desires us. And when we stray away from him, we go away from him, he's always waiting. He's waiting, he's waiting, and then when we finally come to our senses, he runs to us. Did you notice that? How the father ran to his son. It's not that his son was all of a sudden worthy of anything. But his son had come home. His son had repented. The thing that grabs my heart with that video was the very, fast, the very last scene. <clears throat> The scene of the father reaching out to his son and holding him, hugging him. He's longed for him to come home for so long. 
they kind of back away, and then all of a sudden they hug again. And you can see the intensity that they hold each other. And that father is holding that son as hard as he can. That's the father's love. That's the father's love. When we come home, he grabs us and he holds us. And he will hold us for all eternity. Do you believe that this morning? Hold you for all eternity. That's what this song is about. We've sung it several times. So, hey, if you know the song, sing along with it. It's just a great song. He will hold me fast.
Those are some great words. You thought about what that means? He will hold you fast. Once you're his, you're his. You're his. A lot of people, when they survey the Christian landscape, meaning they're looking into the lives of other people, they're expecting perfection. It's not going to happen this side of glory. We're going to sin. We're going to continue to sin. I'm glad that he cleanses us when we confess. Because one of the things that's unfortunate in the church, that's a doctrine that is dangerous, is that once you're saved, that doesn't mean you're always saved. In other words, you can lose your salvation, some teach, based on your actions. <laughs> that's counter to Scripture. And that's why it's so imperative, and this is just something from the song I was thinking about, that there's such a tremendous importance that needs to be shared with the church that there is a difference between justification and sanctification. You know how many times you're justified? Once. Do you know that you and I continue to sin even after that point? How did you, you know that, right? So I'm listening to the words of that song and I'm like, man, Lord, that's good stuff. He holds me fast. There's times where I know how we are as people. We may feel like the Lord has left us. He never does. <laughs> you can rest in that. He never leaves us, the Bible says. He never forsakes us. When you were saved, you were sealed by the Spirit of God. The Bible says twice in one book in Ephesians, you were sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. It does not get better than that. Now that doesn't mean we need to live like an unbeliever in our freedom. But it does mean there's a difference between the two. That was the message I got from the song. That's not even my introduction. I had people ask me, Dad, why are you limping? And if I summed it up in one word, it would be ignorance. I coach a girls' softball team. Um, that's not the ignorance. I coached the girl, a girls' softball team, and on Monday, we had, last Monday, we had practice, and a um, girl threw the ball in. I didn't have any catching at the time. I was just doing infield, outfield. And the girl threw the ball back in on the ground. I always tell them to do that, and it came with some pace. And I was going to take my foot and just stop it with my foot. The problem is that right when it got about to my foot, it bounced. And it was traveling at a very uh, good speed. We'll just say that. Hit my, just below my shin on the right side. I have a hematoma. <laughs> Doesn't that sound interesting? <laughs> yeah. So I went to the doctor, woke me up, and I'm like, hey, this is, Real thing, is burning like crazy. And uh, woke me up about 4.30 in the morning. I went to the doctor. He said, well, that, uh, let's do an x-ray. They did an x-ray. It wasn't broken. He said, but 
it's got it's a little warm. He said, uh, might be starting to get infection. I'm like, hey, infection and that. When I hear infection, I'm like, hey, give me what I need because I don't want I don't want that. The moral of this story is don't put your foot out to stop a softball. There is nothing soft about a softball. Well, take your Bibles and go to 1 John. You ever had a conversation with one of your children and some of the first words out of your mouth is, listen up. That ever happened to you? Have you ever been on that side of it where your father or mother just looked at you and said, Listen up. I'm quite certain we have, and if you haven't and you want to hear those words, come by my office. Listen up. That's the title I've given to this section of scripture in first John chapter five, chapter one, verses uh, verse five through chapter two, verse two. Our chapter breaks are not inspired, just so that you know that, so that when you come to sections of Scripture, there's times when you cross over into another chapter. And remember, these guys received the letter differently than you and I have it here. Okay, So they're reading through the letter, and so when they're reading through the letter, this is a section of Scripture that John intended to be one section. My goal is to, to cover it in two sessions, but likely it'll be three. The reason it's so imperative to listen up is because of some of what I just discussed. When you come to Christ as Savior, as a personal Savior, then you're justified. You're declared righteous. You're not declared righteous based on you. You're declared righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which covers you. When you trust in what he did for you on the cross and dying for your sins. Everybody understand that? So you're covered with the righteousness of Christ that is never removed. Okay? So I like that. I like the fact that I've been declared righteous by God based on my faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing else. And people talk about their salvation, right? And, And rightly so. We need to talk about our salvation. But there is an area that I believe is missing maybe in terms of discussion that we need to think through a little bit more. And John wanted his audience to think through a lot. And that's the issue of fellowship, sanctification. That walking with the Lord peace in your life and my life. Um, Considering the importance of fellowship. We talked about the meaning of fellowship. It's, it's a shared life with someone. Well, in this case, the goal of the believer is to have a shared life with Christ, a partnership with Him, an intimacy with Him, a closeness with Him. That's the idea of fellowship. So if someone is to, was to ask you the question, how is your fellowship with the Lord? Is that an important question? Answer, Yes. Have we always been honest about that with people? That's something to think about. Uh, I've had to think about it, so I'm just going to let you think about it. In this section, John is going to outline for these believers um, what 
the hurdle is to fellowship. And it's a three-letter word. And it's called sin. Sin impedes fellowship with God and with the Son. And that's its primary focus. Now, to be fair, there are some that view 1 John through the grid of a, a test for believers. In other words, you profess to know Christ, but because these things are true, you really don't know Christ. That's one viewpoint. And um, I respect a lot of the theologians that are in that camp. But I don't believe that's what John's writing about. There are some that even have the view that it's mainly fellowship, but there's a little bit of um, a discussion in the book about one's salvation, which is true in a sense, because he talks about the forgiveness of sins in chapter 2, verse 12, and he talks about knowing that you belong to the Lord. But the primary emphasis seems to be on fellowship, on what it means to walk with the Lord in close proximity to Him. That's where I think the church has come short in discussing this. It typically is presented in this way. You need to do this, and you need to do that, and you don't need to do this, and you don't need to do that. And it's like, hold on a second. When was the last time you heard someone talk about fellowship in terms of pulling up close to the Lord? And how that looks in your life. Not all the do's and the don'ts. That's all I'm, ta- that's all I'm talking about. That's, that can lead to legalism. What we want is to enjoy the fellowship with the Lord. Which if we do that, as you're going to see, it's going to lead us to obedience. There's going to be this continual cleansing that goes on in our lives. So there's a lot packaged in these verses. I think I need to read something to you about why John wrote potentially what he wrote. There's some that would argue that John's just writing. He doesn't have necessarily um, uh, an audience of those who were um, proclaiming uh, false, false, um, a false message. I guess that's how I would say it. Um, but in chapter 2, he, he's clear that there are people who are influencing these believers. He doesn't say that in this section, but... Gnosticism was something that was a problem in the late 1st century and 2nd century and on. One of the authors who who wrote about 1 John said this, Some of the Gnostics, remember, and the basic tenet of Gnosticism is all flesh is evil, the spirit is good. Okay, He writes this, Some of the Gnostics, antinomians is who they were, this sect of Gnosticism, said that because of their spiritual knowledge or enlightenment, they were free to behave as they liked without committing sin. Well, does that sound accurate to the Scriptures? No, it doesn't. So these are false teachers proclaiming this, quote-unquote, their truth. But the Scripture is clear, the Bible is clear, that... The Lord Jesus died for our sins, and justification is available to those who put their trust in Christ. But this issue of sanctification and of living a life that's separate to the Lord is absolutely very critical in one's life, especially as we think of fellowship with the Lord. And so Gnosticism was really starting to wreak havoc at the end of the first century, and that's when John wrote this letter. 
He goes on to say that the antinomians rejected the law. That's what antinomianism is. It's a rejection of law of commands. Um, they viewed them as legalism. And they can be viewed as legalism, if not in Scripture, if not taught in their proper context. If it's just a list of do's and don'ts without any consideration of who God is and what He's done for us and who the Son is and what He's done for us, then it will turn out to be legalism. And it will turn out this way. In order to remain justified, I must behave a certain way. So there's this gray area for a lot of people. That doesn't mean that justification and sanctification aren't tied together, but there's a difference. And it's important as we read through these verses to understand that difference, to understand how these Christians were being influenced in their day just like today. When you run up against the issues of abortion and marriage defined not between a man and a woman, but anything's acceptable, that's a problem. You say, well, that's just a problem in the world. The church, you know, the church, everybody has the right mindset when it comes to that in the church. True? Not true. Not true at all. So as you, as you come to this particular section, I think there could be some confusion if you're viewing it through the relationship grid or through the grid of justification instead of the grid of fellowship and sanctification. And so I've spent an enormous amount of time in this, and I'm very, very troubled, like in terms of I've been a believer for 50 years, and I've a handful of times maybe I've heard something along these lines of the importance of fellowship. Does that make sense? In other words, relationship, 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 how one's saved, important to discuss. But once you're saved, that fellowship piece is critical. All right? And you're going to see as we define it how critical that is. Um, Let's read chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him. Him there goes back to verse 3 in Jesus Christ. And announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him. In other words, we're verbalizing that. That we're walking with the Lord. That we're close to him. And yet walk in darkness. We lie And do not practice the truth. And in the Greek language, that phrase practice the truth means to live out the truth. In other words, we're not living it out. We're saying one thing, but doing another. Does that make sense? He says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that one another there does not go back to to believers primarily. He's talking about fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's the one another. That's the primary um, persons in mind. The Father and the Son. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now see, that false teaching could have led to these believers buying into a doctrine that was false. You say, well, not that. If they had any discernment at all, they wouldn't have bought in. Well, how many believers buy into false teaching now? Right? Believers, true believers who know the Lord. See, we have in our minds, well, true believers who know the Lord, they'll never walk in a false way. Are you kidding me? We are influenced by people that teach. Like, think, for example, during your week. How many different pastors do you listen to? Used to, you only had one you could listen to. <laughs> right? Back in the day. Well, now you can listen to anybody you want to listen to all around the world at any time. And what should we be doing when we listen to these people? We should be like the Bereans who investigated the scriptures to see if the things that were said are true. Because guess who teaches behind pulpits? Flawed men like me. Right? Every one of us. Hey, we're not perfect. There is one teacher in our lives who lives in us, and that's the Spirit of God. And the Bible says He leads us into all the truth. And by the way, you want the truth, this book right here, that's where you're going to find it. So, it could get to the point where they were saying this, and He says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's easy, by the way, to deceive ourselves when it comes to sin. Did you know that? This is the way that looks. Well, it's really not that bad. You know, what I did was not that bad. And, and then I look over here, well, I don't do what they do. And this is just a little sin. This is not one of the ginormous sins. So I'm really, I'm doing well. Right? I'm, there's no sin in my life. There's always sin. See, we tend to measure it this way, horizontally. I look at my life and I go, well, now, I'm buttoned up. I'm nice and neat. My life is on cruise control. I'm 100% godly. I look at other people over there, I'm better than them. But the reality is this. There are sins that we commit we're unaware of. Sins of omission, right? There's sins of, I believe, the one sin that you and I probably struggle with the most, that if we were to put that particular issue under the light, which is the Lord, we, we would begin to find as we got older in the Lord how difficult the sin of pride is. The Lord hates pride. But the reality is, pride fleshed out is, I'm dependent on myself. Well, you ever been there and done that for a period of time? Absolutely, it happens. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, and the word confess, we'll get to it sometime next week probably, means to agree with the Lord. Now, what are we agreeing with? What he says, right? It's already been said. The scriptures clearly delineate what are issues with the Lord, like pride, like unwholesome words that proceed from our mouth, as Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, when he says, let no unwholesome word 
proceed from your mouth. How many times, though, has it been where you've claimed victory in that and gone, hey, I'm doing great. But in your mind, you're just torching, right, whatever it is. So there's more to it, is what I'm saying, than it's on the surface. There's a, there are deeper issues. And, and listen, I'm, I'm speaking to myself, okay? You just happen to be here. There are deeper issues. All of us have them. We have propensity to sin. And he gives us tremendous encouragement as to what happens as we're walking in the light in relationship to sin. I think you'll be very encouraged by that. But we don't ever get to, need to get to the point where we're just like, I'm good. Because the reality is that, and we don't like to hear this, because basically how many times have we said, I'm good, or they're good, or they're good? No. No, Scripture says there's not one that's good. Not even one. So, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of people I've heard over the years, did it myself years and years ago, use this as a salvation verse. That's not the primary emphasis here. Primary emphasis is fellowship. It's that daily walk with the Lord. And it's important, we'll talk about this next week, just introducing the thought, there's a difference between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness happens once. But parental forgiveness is over and over and over again. It's like relationship, this is illustrated best with relationship between a father and son or, or mother and daughter. Um, you, they are your son and they are your daughter and that's it. Set in stone. Okay? Um, you can't change that. They'll always be your son. They'll always be your daughter. Even when you kick them out of the house, they're still going to be your son and daughter. Everybody get that? But there are times when things happen where that fellowship is broken. True? We just saw it today on that video. Okay? So it's important to kind of have the mind here in the context that he's talking about fellowship and how that looks and the importance of admitting and confessing our sins on a daily basis as we are walking in the light. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, notice the progression from 6 to 8 to 10. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. His truth is not in us. My little children, now this is very important. My little children is a phrase that he uses over again throughout the book. Chapter 2, verse 12. This is, one to me, one of the greatest arguments for their position. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, chapter 2, verse 12, because your sins have been forgiven you. <laughs> right? You don't need to worry about that for his name's sake. But in chapter 2, verse 1, he's talking here to believers as a spiritual father. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is not an issue here of salvation. It's an issue of sanctification. And if anyone sins, we, notice that pronoun, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's pray. That was the introduction. Let's pray.
God, just for a few moments, I pray that we could focus our attention on these verses. I pray that your spirit would be the one that leads us and guides us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You ever been in your house on a bright morning, right? Say a Saturday morning, because we tend to be at our homes the most on a Saturday morning. And when you open the door, that light comes in, and you see under your couch for the first time in a month or months. What's under there? What does that light reveal? I call them treasures. There are treasures that are revealed, but there's also typically what? Lots of dust. We can even look and, and go, man, my house is really clean, and then open that door, and oh my goodness, my house is not really clean. Light reveals. Light penetrates. Um, if we walk close to the light, as we're going to talk about, it's going to reveal. That's what happens. When we're close to the Lord, guys, judicially we're forgiven, but that parental thing, that everyday fellowship, Confessing that's critical to that ongoing fellowship we want to enjoy, which brings us joy, by the way. So the first thing he introduces us to in chapter 1, verse 5, is who God is. I have that on your notes there for you. <laughs> you fill in the rest of it. And I'll give, you, um, I'll give you my notes, like I said, when I'm done with the chapter. Who God is. He's light. Notice verse 5. This is the message... We have, who is we, the apostles, have, um, we have heard from him. This is the message we have heard from him. And him goes back to verse 3, Jesus Christ, and announced to you. That word announce is probably not a really good translation of the word. It's, it's the word preach. In other words, this is what we've heard from him and we're preaching this to you. We're telling you this people have in our just as a side note I think there's been somewhat of a uh, how would I word this somewhat of a uh, tentative spirit on the part of Christians in terms of listening to preaching you know why because preaching gets into our grill so to speak gets into our backyard it's uncomfortable but I want you to know something. And I want you to take comfort in this. Everything that I am saying to you, I've had to wrestle with in my own life first. Okay? So I think it's just really important that, that you understand that. So he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. Now, if... John stopped there, we would say, okay, there's no darkness in the Lord. Would that be right? Yes, it'd be right. But notice that little phrase, at all. It's a critical phrase. In fact, the Greek brings it out a little more for us. This is how it reads, the last part of that sentence, the word order. It says that, that the God, so it's not just a God, but the God... Light is, and darkness in him not is none. <laughs> that kind of does it, doesn't it? And that's a weird construction, but it's the construction. 
So what John is saying here to his audience, excuse me, is that the God is light and darkness is not in him none. I wrote in my notes, not a hint of darkness. No falsehood in God. No error in him. No imperfection. When I came to this passage and I began to think through and pray through, and I'm like, Lord, help me. When I got to that phrase, God is light, I understood that the primary, I think, the primary emphasis for John there is that the Lord is 100% pure based on what he's about to discuss with them. But I thought of the word perfection. He's just perfect. Now, when we think about that in our culture, that's not good enough. Because we, we tag things, man, that's perfect. That game was perfect. They played a perfect game. No, 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 no. See, God transcends all that. The Bible tells us in Isaiah about the pureness of God. Um, it says, the angels, the seraphim, were calling out, crying out to one another, saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's who He is. So in my mind, He's perfect, perfect, perfect. He's so beyond us, and yet in our culture, people treat Him like, well, He's the man upstairs. He's God and God alone. He's the God. As John says. So he wants to clarify for them. Look there is no other God. He is the God. And he is light. And in him there is no darkness. At all. He's the antithesis of darkness. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. I think that's exactly what. John has in mind here. Based on the context. So he sets up for his readers. This is who God is. Question. Who do you say God is? Have you ever heard those interviews that people do? They'll go on the streets and they'll say, who is God to you? And I'm like, okay, I get the interviews, but I'm like, what they say really doesn't matter because God's not defined by man. Scripture tells us who God is. God is spirit. The Bible says that. In this particular book, it tells us that God is light. And it tells us in this book, God is love. Isn't that interesting? It is so uh, succinct. God is light. God is love. Some of the issues that he talks about in terms of one's fellowship relate to both of those. Because he's going to address how one walks and he's going to address for the believer love, what that looks like. So, the temptation is to measure pureness or holiness based on my neighbor and not God. To measure love sideways and not vertical. In other words, God is love. He, that's who he is in his person. So, might I say that probably the way we treat some of the passages as it relates to who God is and how that's expressed... I'm just going to speak for myself. I could do a better job of being reverent in that. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, 
if he is love and his concern for me is that I love one another, then I need to consider the fact that I'm not getting this information from someone who's just a little bit above me. I'm getting this information from a holy, holy, holy God. And do you know, guys, what's so awesome about sanctification is as much as um, the Lord loves us and, and saves us in that area called justification, His love never wavers. It's not like this. You know, so these phrases that are given to us in this letter are important to consider. Because with this statement, then, he is going to start his, if we say that, the first thing. So he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Most theologians agree that... that John here is expressing the purity of the Lord, the perfection of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord. That's who he is. Point two on your handout is where fellowship is. And that's his main discussion in verses six and seven. Where fellowship is, fellowship is in the light. Okay? So who is God? Who, who is he? He's light. Where fellowship is, fellowship is in the light. How many of you desire fellowship with the Lord? I do. And I didn't realize how, I don't think, I'm just being honest with you, I, don't, I didn't realize how much focus and attention um, that I needed to have in that area of my life until I started studying this. Like I'm not giving enough attention. You know how we tend to do. I'm just going to talk in generalities. We tend to, to well, I'm doing okay here. And I'm, I'm doing okay here. And I'm okay here. I'm, I'm a good Christian. It's not about a good Christian. It's about me coming close to the Father and to the Son. And when I come close to the Father and the Son, you know what's going to happen? That light, God, is what he's going to, it's going to be exposed in my life, all that dirt. You're like, that's terrible. No, it's not. No, in fact, he encourages the stew out of you and me in this section. We have to deal with verse 6 first. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, that we're Sharing our life with him on a daily basis, that we're close to him. So that's what we say. That's the verbal message. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, in other words, he's saying, look, if you say you're in fellowship with the Lord, all right, but you're walking in darkness, then you're not in fellowship with the Lord. What you say and, and, and what you do is not lining up. Um, does that happen? You ever given a false message to someone when they've asked you, how's your walk with the Lord? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. But you hadn't opened your Bible in six months. And you, you're not close up to him. Because I'm going to talk about some of the practical ways that we can know that fellowship with the Lord. Um, He's pretty strong language. 
He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, we're, we're close to him, we're walking with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Some people, when they come to that phrase, walking in the darkness, they go, okay, no, there's not a, no believer can walk in darkness for a period of time. So they just must not be believers. Really? How long did David walk away from the Lord? In darkness. At least eight months to a year. That's a long time. It is a long time. Solomon, did he finish well? Did he? No, he didn't. Ananias and Sapphira, how did that go? There's an example, and I want to give it to you, in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. I didn't give the guys these scriptures, I don't think, but oh well, it'll be all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I know this in context is dealing with a group of believers, but I think it's important, it's a good illustration as to how a group of believers can feel really good, feel really good about themselves and their lives and not be. But if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you're going to find out that this church had a lot of issues. There was disunity in the church. Well, is that sin? Yes. Okay? You're going to find out that the believers were wanting to sue believers. There are a lot of issues within this particular book. I think one of the most telling is in chapter 5. Because he gives us an indication as to where these believers were when this issue had come up. Obviously, Paul knew about the issue. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. (laughs) I mean, right? You're looking at that going, well, yeah, does that happen? The church happens. But look at here. An immorality of such a kind does not exist even among the Gentiles, among the pagans. And you're the church. Remember, He's writing to the church, to the believers there. He says it doesn't even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. That's a problem. That's called sin. Look at verse 2. Here it is. We talked about pride a few minutes ago. You, the church, have become arrogant. And have not mourned instead. Gives us a good idea of how the way, the way the Lord wants us to treat sin within the body. We need to mourn when people are in sin. You know what happens in a lot of churches when there's sin? Open sin that needs to be dealt with? They don't deal with it. You know what the, the, the thought is? Well, that's none of my business. I can't get that phrase, none of my business. What are you talking about? It is our business. What's interesting that in the scriptures, in Matthew 16, the term church is used. In Matthew 18, the term church is used pre-church. In the second usage of that term church, it's in the context of a sheep going astray. What do you do? Well, you just let them go. No, that's not what you do. It's clear that God wants us to deal with sin in the body of Christ. Um, And there are a lot of churches that simply aren't committed to that. That's just the truth. I'm just being honest with you. 
You know why they're scared? You know, if we deal with this sin problem in this camp over here, then we're going to lose people. Okay. You say, Thad, you're okay with that? This is what I'm okay with, doing what God tells me to do. That's what I'm okay with. See, at the end of the day, it's not we don't govern. It's the Lord that governs what we do. And so it's clear that the response that we should have to one who is in sin, according to what I'm reading here, Paul says, you should have mourned. It's grievous what this person has done. Now, I want to give you the rest of the story before you walk out in tears. Bottom line is, you know, this person was restored. They dealt with the sin. He was restored. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, it's obvious the person was restored because he talks about the issue again. And it says, he says to them, I don't want you to just forgive that person, but this is how forgiveness is fleshed out. You walk beside them. And you know what happens, though, a lot of times? We deal with the sin, the person repents, and we let him go. That let him go is a tragedy. The man in Corinth was not restored to Ephesus. He was restored to Corinth. Notice what it says. He says, you become arrogant, the church, you become arrogant, have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Serious stuff. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. And he said, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus catch that the issue there is destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord jesus you know guys sometimes you can't explain the death of a person when i was in new york state there was a a man who wanted to pastor um a sister church and the elders were or we didn't have elders but the deacons were kind of putting that together and he agreed with the deacons to be under their leadership for one year three months later he says I don't want anything to do with you I'm going to do church the way I want to do church he was dead six months later now I'm not saying that I know for certain the Lord dealt with that man but he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira he dealt with the Corinthian church when they were abusing the Lord's Supper, when they should have been sharing together. He said to them, listen, because you're like this, some among you are weak, some are sick, some are dead. I'm not God, and you're not God, but God has a very serious mind when it comes to sin. And so that's, I think, the illustration, the point I wanted to make there from... 1 Corinthians, that indeed sin can reign in a church. It can happen. One of the biggest things that I look at today in the church is that there are more and more pastors who are wanting to tickle the ears of their congregation. Well, i got to say something nice, because if I don't say something nice, well, then they're not going to come back. 
there's a way to preach and teach. You know, you're not beating people over the head. But you present the information, don't you? And you let the Spirit of God work in the hearts of men. Because I don't know about you, but I know about me. My fellowship with the Lord can improve. How about yours? So fellowship is in the light. So he says, if we say that we have fellowship, verse 6, with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. We're not telling the truth. We're saying one thing, but we're doing another. It reminds me of Paul's um, instruction in Ephesians 1, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, where he's talking about the position and the practice of the believer and how they come together. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That word worthy there is a picture of scales. It's a balance. In other words, I belong to the Lord and I'm living like I belong to the Lord. One of the things that will hinder us in that fellowship is honesty about where we are. And there's a lot addressed in there in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 as it relates to the believer's walk. One theologian wrote, when we live in unholiness, and that's what's happening here, unforgiveness and ungodliness, we will not find God there. Let me read that again. When we live in unholiness, unforgiveness, and ungodliness, we will not find God there. Any of you ever not forgiven somebody? I'm going to raise both my hands. Is that a problem? It's a problem. Sin. You know, it's amazing to me as I look in the Bible, the illustrations that the Lord gives in the life of his disciples. You know, Peter's got the question. Hey, how, how much, you know, should I forgive, Lord? You know, maybe Peter's thinking oh, three times or seven times. And what does the Lord say? Over and over and over and over and over, 70 times seven. You see, guys... We're, we're in this culture, but we're not. This is our home, but it's not. We have a heavenly home. And there are heavenly expectations for those who belong to the Lord. Remember, I told you I was speaking to myself this morning. <laughs> I am. He gives to these believers some benefits of walking in the light. Look at verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light, that's where he is. We walk in the light. As he himself is in the light, there are two benefits. So he says, look, if we walk in the light versus walking in the darkness, let me tell you a couple of benefits. Number one, he says, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, if I'm walking in the light, if I'm walking close to the Lord, then that fellowship that I want is there, right, with him. He says, we have fellowship with one another. And as I said a few minutes ago, that phrase, one another, is primarily pointing back to the Father and to the Son. So if I'm walking in the light, the first benefit is that I'm going to have fellowship with the Lord. J. Dwight Pentecost said this, John is not primarily talking about the fellowship of believers. That doesn't mean there's not a little bit in there. 
Because when we're in fellowship with the Lord and, and, and we're together and you're in fellowship with the Lord, well, not only are we close to the Lord, but we're close to one another. Does that make sense? But Pentecost says John is not primarily talking about the fellowship of two believers. He is referring to a believer in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. I love this statement. He says, salvation doesn't depend on our godliness, but our fellowship with the Father and the Son does. And he goes on to say, and I just had to write this. I thought, well, this is already enough from J. Dwight, but it's not. He said, to know the blessing of fellowship with God and then step into darkness and walk alone is to rob yourself of joyful companionship with God. Let me read that again. I'm going to give it to you in your notes. To know the blessing of fellowship with God. Have you known that? And then step into darkness and walk alone is to rob yourself of joyful companionship with the Lord. We need to think of it like that picture we saw. He wants us right here with him. But not only is there the benefit of fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with one another, there's this continual cleansing that takes place. Remember, we talked about a little bit the difference, we'll talk more about it next time, between judicial forgiveness, a one-time event, and that parental forgiveness, which is every day. He's our Heavenly Father. My position does not change. I belong to Him. But I don't know about you, but when I pull up close to the light, meaning the Lord, there's a lot revealed in my life. There's lots of dust. <laughs> right? You say, well, that, that's awful. Well, you know the good part and the encouraging part? The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, in a section on sanctification, he says this is his conclusion. Because he talks about justification in chapter 4, reconciliation in chapter 5. So he's already dealt with the position of the believer, and now he's going to talk about the practice of the believer. Remember in that section, he says, the very things I, do, uh, I don't want to do, I do. I mean, I'm putting my hands up for that, right? But in that section, at the end of chapter 7, his conclusion is this. Oh, wonderful man that I am. Not quite. What does he say? Oh, wretched man. That I am. But you know how, listen, it's that light on Paul's life, and he's, he comes to the point where he's like, I'm doing the very things I don't want to do. And, and he comes to the conclusion, I'm a wretched man. But he was a saved man. You know how I know? Because how must it have been for him to pin the words, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ. He, he was probably putting his hands up. Hallelujah. We need to do the same. Because notice at the end of verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That word cleanses is very important, at least for one reason. And it's this. It's present tense. You say, Thad, that's, yeah, that may mean this. As I'm walking in the light, I'm walking close, and the things are revealed that I need to confess, which he talks about in verse 9. You know what happens? Cleansing. That's why he speaks about it in more detail in verse 9. If we confess our sins, 
He's what? Faithful and just to forgive us. When are we confessing our sin? When we're walking in darkness? No, we're confessing our sins. We're coming out of darkness, right? Back into the light alongside of him. So it's present tense meaning this. This is how it means. As one is walking in the light, his sin is exposed. As he asks or confesses, he is forgiven. Light reveals the dirt. I wanted to give you three things. I didn't realize it was 1147. But I want to give you three things. And we're going to pick up here next week. The good part about First John is we can open up to it and just start where we left off. You say, what does it mean to walk in the light? Like, how does that look? Right? I mean, we know God is light. We know we need to, to, to pull up close to the Lord and fellowship with Him. Um, but what does that look like on a practical level? Well, I wrote down some things I want you to think about. We'll deal with these texts next week. First of all, if we're walking in the light, we're walking by the Spirit. Okay, put that scripture up. We'll, we'll deal with that one just to kind of give you an example. So if we're walking in the light, we're walking by the Spirit. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means we're influenced by the Spirit, right? That's what it means. We're influenced by Him. And see, the battle He even talks about here is the influence of the flesh. So Galatians chapter 5 let me just read a couple of verses here and I'll stop. Unless you brought your lunch. I got a new Bible. One of my sons gave me a Bible for Christmas. And I said, I'm going to start using that Bible. And you know what's so wonderful about this Bible? The print is massive. So I don't even need these readers that I have. It's wonderful. So I'm just looking right down at this. It's like, whoa. But in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, look what it says. Now here's the instruction to believers. My argument for these scriptures I'm going to use is this is what it looks like to walk in the light practically. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit... Walk under the influence of the Spirit. Well, when does that happen? When I'm close to the light. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's what this means practically. I want to be influenced by the Spirit. Don't you? I want to be influenced by the Spirit. So if I'm going to be influenced by the Spirit, where do I have to park myself? Right here. Right? There, there's just no substitute for that. He says, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, a very important verse, you're not under the law. How do you want to be led? By the spirit, right? He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Sorcery, enmities, strifes, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Look at that list. He says, of which I forewarn you, who? Believers. 
But those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, which has to do with a future event, right? The kingdom. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice what he says in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also what? Walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. I've got more I want to share with you. But I think that passage gives to us some kind of shoe leather. Hey, to, to, to measure. If I'm walking in the light where he is, then I'm being led by the Spirit. I'm being controlled by him. We'll talk about the other two next week because I really want to get into those passages. But I wanted to close with this. I've been... Um, pastoring now for 21 years 22 about 20 yeah 22 years about 22 years been in the ministry for 31 years there are many many sermon series that I have done over the years that have challenged me and influenced me but to this point this one man it's huge it's huge because it forces me to ask myself where I am in my daily walk with the Lord. And guys, I want to tell you something. I'm not in a different boat from you. We're in the same boat as believers. We all can improve in that. And I think the key component, first of all, is that we walk by the Spirit. That we're led and influenced by Him. Let's pray uh, together. Lord, I just pray that um, you would help us. Thank you, Lord, that we're not alone in this. Your word tells us that um, our helper is actually in us, residing in us. I pray that as we live our lives each day, that, Lord, we would be conscious about behavior about the things that we do that that as we walk with you that as those things are exposed that we do that aren't right that fall short that we would take comfort in the fact that you cleanse us and that fellowship is restored and you cleanse us and that fellowship is restored it's over and over and over again the reason it's over and over and over again is because we sin we are so so thankful for the judicial forgiveness that we have that once for all Lord it's that daily fellowship that we admit we need your help in and so I just pray that you would help us by your spirit to live for your glory each and every day. As Psalm 104 verse 2 says, the clo your clothing is the light. Help us to walk in the light as you're in the light. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.
close the service, we'd like to uh, sing a song that uh, is going to be one that you're going to be singing for too long. But um, come behold the wondrous mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom hearts. Come behold the wondrous mystery, He the perfect Son of Man, in His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain. the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sin. of our redemption see the Father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory grace unmeasured love untold come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death a god of life but no grave could e'er restrain him praise the lord he is alive what a foretaste of deliverance how unwavering our hope christ the the power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Thank you, Ron. So think of this, how good God is that not only does he want to enter into a relationship with us, but he wants to continue with fellowship. 
That's good. It's not I'm just saved and that's it. It's I'm saved and he wants me close to him every day. Just as fathers and mothers want their kids close to them. I wanted to make mention of an announcement about baptism. The second Sunday in February, we will have baptism. And if you are praying about that, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago, um, I, I need to meet with you before that second Sunday. and We can talk about biblically what that looks like and, and the importance of it. Um, we haven't had a baptism in a while. And um, it's great that we have new believers, and um, we're praising the Lord for that. And uh, we want him to get all the glory. But we also want there to be a public testimony um, that they belong to Christ and that their desire is to live for him. And that's, that's a big statement. So uh, the second Sunday in February, we'll have baptism. If you're interested, please contact me. And I don't, it doesn't matter the age. I baptized people in their probably 60s and 70s. I think Amy Lofton was even older than that. She's with the Lord now, but um, yeah. So, you know, something the Lord wants you to do, and I would love to sit down with you and talk with you about it, all right? It's great to see you today. Those of you who visited with us today, we're glad you're here. I'd love to speak with you before you leave, and uh, I hope you have a, a good week, and uh, I don't think there's any snow in the forecast this week, so you should be good. You are dismissed.